All right, don't tell Steve I was late. I'm always late. Yeah, there you go. Sorry about the seats. It's a little disconcerting, isn't it? We had the Holy Ghost stories in here Sunday night, and they wanted to pack as many in as they could. So when you have to go to the bathroom, excuse yourself, right? You have to buy. Excuse me. I've got to go. But don't worry. It's changing tomorrow. So we have another different thing planned for Sunday in here with tables. So we'll change all that again. But we're glad you're here tonight. Glad to study. We are doing our best to explore the world of Jesus. A lot of times... We just look at what he said, some of the actions that he took. But before the drama, if you will, started, he picked a stage. He picked a set. He picked other actors in a real-life story. And so we've tried to look at that carefully since, I guess, August. Why did he come from Galilee? What was it? What can we learn? What was different? What was similar? Well, remember, of course, Galilee is outside of the Jewish state. It's sort of like New York to Israel today. So you would think that the Messiah would be born in Israel, not New Jersey. Uh, But that's why they say in the scriptures, what good can come from Galilee? You know, it wasn't a badge of honor. But Jesus really seems to have loved his hometown, his home area. Remember, of course, that he comes from the agricultural part of Galilee, um, part of the Jezreel Valley, which is the breadbasket of Israel. And then later in his ministry, he'll move to the sort of industrial part, if we can use that term so early, of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where people were catching fish to sell it to the Romans. Remember, Romans love their garum, fermented fish sauce. It's like ketchup for them. Everything they have, they have to put some garum on it. So everybody turned their nose up at it, except for when you had to sell it to the Romans. But later in his ministry, he'll continue to move around. Uh, He obviously heads south. So that's what we've been doing. Um, He's passing through Samaria, and we talked about them a little bit. And then for more weeks than I wanted, uh, the Pharisees. But tonight we're going to move on. I'm trying to keep to the original lesson plan to have us in Bethlehem by Christmas. But we've got some holidays that are going to cut us short, so I've got got to get moving. So let's have a quick word of prayer, and we'll jump into it. Father God, we thank you for today. We know you've had many labors, many things to get done, many responsibilities. But now is our time with you. We open your word, O Lord, that our hearts might be opened to you, that we might see the truth of what you did and when you did it, and the way that you spoke, the way that you still teach us tonight. Help us to try to put ourselves back in those days, to hear the words that you spoke to those people as if you speak to them, to us tonight. Help us, O Lord, to not get lost in guessing the end of the story, but to get lost in your love, in your teaching, and the reality of the choices you call us to make today. May it be different for us because we've heard you. Help us. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, the Sadducees. I never get past what my pastor said when I was a little kid. It stayed with me. Um, the way to remember the Sadducees is because they were sad, you see. Oh, my gosh. The things that we do with language and words that we don't understand. We remember, of course, that with both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these words come to us through Greek, through the New Testament. In the case of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we only really have two good historical sources. One are the gospel, and the second is the Roman historian, well, he's Jewish, uh, he's a turncoat, he's a traitor, um, but Josephus, Flavius Josephus, that's his Roman name. Remember, he's a Jewish general, he's actually a Pharisee, and he fights in the revolt against Rome, and he loses. His job was to defend Galilee, and he loses. And so he tells his men, we can't let this disgrace stand. We've all got to commit suicide to show our dedication to God. And because I'm your commanding officer, I will be the last one to commit suicide. So, you know how that went down, right? At the very end, he had a change of heart. And so he will go and be kind of a, a lap dog for the Romans, and he writes histories. So I really don't like the guy, except for his histories are pretty great, or they're great because we don't have any other Jewish sources at the time. So Josephus, uh, famous, if you're building a biblical library, you might want to pick up... Uh, I mean, they're on Amazon. I probably have them at Barnes & Noble. It's good to have. It's a thick read. It's like an encyclopedia. But he gives us lots of, lots of detail. But again, he wrote in Greek. So first of all, dealing with the name Sadducee. They're not sad people. Um, we've got a slide, I think, to help us. The Greeks couldn't say strange Hebrew words any better than we could. So uh, actually, I think it's the one after this. The Sadducees are actually the Tzedokim. So say that three times fast. Tzedokim. So the T-S-T-Z is actually a letter, a sound that we don't have in English. They do in Hebrew. So a lot of times it gets translated as an S or a Z. Zadok is usually what our Bibles say. But the Tzedokim are naming themselves after Zadok, the priest. And we'll look, about, look at him for a few minutes in a second. He is uh, a priest that's a descendant of Aaron that actually anointed uh, Solomon when he was king. So these priests follow their lineage all the way back to the time of Solomon. And that's, you know, pretty good claim to fame. You know, our, our founder started uh, with Solomon. So that's their claim to fame. How we got Sadducee from Sadochim, I don't even know. I mean, are there any letters that are actually the same? I guess an A and a D. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it, yeah, they, they couldn't say those words either. So what, what do we know? The, the history of the Jews in the first century really was affected by the time of the exile, which we've talked about. Remember, they lost their country. 
they were unfaithful to God. They broke his covenant. They started acting like the nations around them. When we read in the Old Testament that they started worshiping the gods of the nations, it sounds so benign. And a lot of times Hebrew is very uh, careful. It's circumspect because it doesn't want to say inappropriate things. Um, but when you get to Jeremiah and some of the others, Isaiah, they'll be very blunt. Uh, God destroyed you because you burned your children as sacrifices. The Canaanite gods, the nations, uh, wanted uh, a sacrifice of your firstborn, uh, the, the Yahid, my only begotten. So in order to appease Baal and make sure the rains came, you had to burn your child. Uh, this was the red line for God, and so they ceased to be a nation. So the temple, everything they'd had before was destroyed. And they go to live in foreign lands. They go back uh, to slavery, primarily in Babylon. And we've talked about this. During that time, they didn't have Jerusalem. They didn't have the temple. They couldn't do the things that Moses had commanded them to do. So the best they thought they could do was study the scriptures. They could do the best to remember what the Hebrew actually meant, and they could teach that to their children. Sort of instead of going to temple, they would go to gathering places that we know by another Greek term, synagogues, and they would study the scripture. I love that they did this because a lot of times they wrote some of this stuff down. And when we go back and try to figure out Hebrew, we have cheat notes where the Jews are writing to themselves saying, we don't use this word anymore, but this is what it used to mean. And it's invaluable to help us understand uh, a lot of the Old Testament. But all of that changes really because of the faithfulness of some of the characters in the latter part of Scripture, like Daniel, Ezekiel, Nehemiah. They are servants for these overlords, so first Babylonians and then Persians. So the Persians, the last rulers before the Greeks, decide the Jews are pretty reliable, and they give them back their country. So Ezra and Nehemiah return to the land, return to Jerusalem. And what's... What's the first things they build? Build a temple? Actually, before that, what did they build? A wall. Yeah. You, you got to keep the people out. Don't, don't give, me, give me a hard time. And they rebuild a temple. So in a way, they were sort of answering this big question of what the Jews were going to do when they came back home. We talked about this with the Pharisees. This was a huge question, a basic form of identity. What kind of people are we going to be when we get to go back to Jerusalem? Are we going to go back and do what we did before? Are we going to have a temple? I mean, Ezra and Nehemiah, we built it, and here it is. Are we going to do what Scripture literally says? Because Moses commanded, when we sin, we should do this. He commanded us to celebrate these holidays. He, you know, it's all there in black and white. Are we going to do that? Or are we going to realize, well, things have changed a little bit. We're not the same people as we were before. Um, maybe we can't do exactly the literal thing Scripture says, but we can remember it. We can tell the stories. We can find modern ways to apply it. And this is the split when it comes to religion in Jesus' day. 
either we go with this rabbinic, um, we're going to study, we're going to teach, the most informed are our leaders, or we go with this old, classical, traditional, this is what Moses said by God, this is what we're going to do. This is the split between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, a lot of time in modern parlay, we think of them as conservatives in modern society. It's always a fool's errand to match modern politics with ancient politics. They're, it's always way too complicated. But the Pharisees really were very progressive when it came to religion because they were pushing this rabbinic style. They thought it was better to go to synagogue than go to temple. It doesn't mean they ignored temple, but you're gonna learn more about God, they said, by going to the temple. And remember what the Pharisees got in trouble for. They wanted to keep the rules that God had said, and they thought the best way to do that was to give you little helpful steps. So God said rest on Saturday. What does that mean? Don't work. And Pharisees say, well, yeah, that's fine. Let, just let me give you five pointers. Do you, do you love it when pastors used to do that? I've got five steps for my sermon. You know, three points and a joke. That's what they trained me in seminary. I was really bad at it. Three points and a joke. Um, but, you know, Pharisee would say, well, yeah, that's fine. Don't, don't go to work. Um, don't do laundry. Um, don't cook. Yeah. I mean, they, they get really specific. So you know, you know, there's no gray area. Really, maybe the Pharisees were just engineers, right? They're just those detail kind of guys. They're like, I'm going to give it to you. That's like, um, tonight we're looking at the Sadducees. They're the other end of the spectrum. They would say, don't, don't make up stuff. Don't, don't do it, okay? We got into trouble because we veered away from what the Word of God said. We're not ever doing that again, period. So we are just going to take what are the foundations of our faith, and we're going to do them. So we don't need all your extra... It gets into an argument over written law uh, versus oral law. And I don't want to get into all that, but the, the Pharisees would say a rabbi's oral teaching to you can be on par with what the Bible says. And the Sadducees would say that's nonsense. You're not Moses. You're, you're not a great one that God has sent. You're just some schmo. So don't, um, don't, don't do that. The Sadducees said, we're going to go back to the way it was, and we're going to do it exactly the way it said. In fact, the only books that we really want to trust are the first five, because those are the oldest. Those, in a sense, had always been accepted as the teachings of Moses. Everything else may be useful, but a Sadducee, Sadducee would say it's just commentary. It's just people reflecting back on the original law that was given. So here's the split. Pharisees trying to be innovative. Sadducees saying, nope, not going to do it. Um, this is the way it is. One of the things we've talked a little bit about is the view of the afterlife. Now, this is sometimes hard for Christians, but God has taken, I think, a good teaching step to get us ready to understand the afterlife. He didn't start talking about heaven in the Garden of Eden, did he? 
No. In fact, if you look at the early Jews, they don't talk about heaven hardly at all, do they? I mean, Abraham's long desire was to have a trip to heaven, right? What did he want? He wanted a son. He wanted a son by Sarah. And that was one of their ways of having eternity. Because if I have my only begotten son, my Yahid, you know, this is my firstborn, then I'm good. I, I continue. Uh, my, my name doesn't die. When they were delivered from Egypt, God promised them the kingdom of heaven, right? Nope. He promised them the promised land. And it was real. They could touch it. It had an address. So as the Sadducees went back and said, it's only the first five books for us, they started to look at things and say, look, if it's not in here, we're not going for it, okay? We don't see anything about an afterlife in the first five books. We don't. Moses didn't say, um, you know, if you do these things, God will send you to heaven. Moses said, if you keep the commands, then you will dwell in the land of your forefathers, so that's the way it is. So this is a major rift that begins to form in the two sides of Judaism. The Pharisees are saying, no, just, just listen for a minute. Listen to the heart of scripture. God is talking about a judgment day, a time in which history is fulfilled, where we move forward. Uh, there, there is in Daniel, and, but Sadducee would say, I don't care about Daniel. Daniel's not Moses. Ugh. The Sadducees are saying, we don't know what happens when we die. We don't care. God didn't deign to tell us, so we're not bothered. Now, that sounds really strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, just really off the, the, the charts. How could you not worry about heaven? Uh, but that's, that's the development. That's, that's the divide. So just when we sort of think we've got to feel one's conservative, one's liberal, then we have to deal with the issue of Hellenism. How much like the Greeks and later Romans do we as Jews become? And this is their second big question of what we do. And just when you could sort of predict what they were going to do, it gets really, really squirrely. Were the Pharisees big fans of the Greeks? Not at all. They didn't want anything to do with this new modern culture. They said, we should learn Hebrew, we should speak Aramaic, we should follow the way things were before. We don't need this new way of thinking. Where the Sadducees, in a strange way, are almost the complete opposite. They said, look, we're going to keep to the teachings of Moses, we're going to be literal, but we need to stay up to date. We need to be modern in the best sense. We need to be civilized, educated. We can't stick our heads in the sand. The world has changed. We can't ignore Plato and Aristotle. We can't ignore city planning, basic sanitation. If we're going to stop being a backwards people that keeps getting conquered by whatever pathetic empire comes down the road, we have to be able to keep up with them. So we're going to have to compete in this world. It's sort of like, uh, you know, the coming of computers. Uh, the Pharisees would say, nope, never going to touch one. Not going to do it. I hate computers. Computers are the devil. And the Sadducees would say, uh, guess what? 
You're going to have to learn to work that little mouse thing. You're going to have to get a phone that talks back to you. You're just going to have to do it. So this is the other split that begins to go on in their society. Let me show you, I think, our first slide just to help this sink in. So the Pharisees, progressive Judaism, they want to follow this idea of rabbinic Judaism. People go to synagogue, but forget Hellenism. Sadducees of this priestly class have a very conservative form of Judaism. We're going to go back to the temple, but they're all about being, uh, I spelled that wrong, uh, Hellenistic. Um, so there's, there's the break. Now, which camp is Jesus in? Yeah, he's really neither. Um, one of the things that people always say about Jesus, and we tend to miss the point of this, they say, you know, he teaches with authority. And in English, that sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He's a man. He, in Hebrew, it means he's not in either one of these camps. He has shimcha, they say. It's a new interpretation. We've not heard this before. Is Jesus uh, a progressive Jew or a conservative Jew? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, he goes to synagogue, but does he go to temple? Yes. Uh, is he for Rome and Greece, or is he against? It, it's, it's very nuanced. Um, Jesus has a, a different kind of approach. I know some of this might seem frustrating as we first look at it, but really the hope is, as we study it, we'll realize these are not just bad guys. You know, not just cardboard villains. These are smart people that were trying to answer some big questions in society. And maybe we could find some reason why they did what they did, but we have to remember Jesus's criticism of this. The, the Sadducees are of a priestly class. Uh, they are descendants all from the tribe of Levi. This is Moses's tribe. And this is the promise that God made to Aaron, Moses and Aaron, that all of the priests will either be Cohen, which is sort of the high priests, or Levi's, which are the lay priests that travel around. And you know the big job of Levi's? We never talk about this as Christian. What's the most important job of a Levi priest? To what? Sacrifice No. Nope. That, that was more of a Cohen job. Nope. Thank God. Um, can you imagine? Your sacred duty from the Lord is, what? No, no. Um, to collect taxes. Yeah. The Levi was the guy that would show up and, have you paid your tithe yet? Oh, God, the Levi's here. Uh, so poor guys. That, that, when they weren't serving in the temple, that, that was their job. And one reason why they were distributed all throughout Israel, you could never get away from the tax collectors. So it's somewhat an irony when Matthew, who is a follower of Jesus, is also called what? He's called Levi. So in a sense, he was... This was supposed to be his job to collect the tithe for God, but he was collecting it for Rome. But that's, that's a different Bible study. So what do you do 
when your country gets invaded? What do you do as an adult when there's no military way that you can fight back? Do you go Rambo? Do you say, by God, I don't care. I'm gonna fight until everybody's dead. In the case of Rome, you just might get that. They have no problem uh, wiping you out if they need to. So the Sadducees made a decision that we'll look at kind of closely tonight. And you can decide if it's right or wrong. But they said, the new reality is that Rome is here. They're here. We can't fight them. We're not warriors, not really, not like they are. We maybe be able to defeat a legion, maybe, um, but they'll just send more. Ultimately, all we will do is get our people killed and they will destroy the temple again. We have gone through all of this to rebuild the temple, to be true to what God gave to Moses. And if we don't act like adults, be the responsible one in the room, we're gonna lose it all. We've got to find a way to live with Rome. If we work with them, they'll be less violent towards us. If we work with them, maybe we can moderate some of their worst tendencies. Would you go down that road? Maybe you have to. I was thinking a lot about this, thinking about World War II history. Um, You guys remember Vichy, France? In 1940, uh, the Germans smashed uh, the French army, just destroyed it. And there was this sudden break in the French government. And there was a former marshal, uh, like a field marshal from World War I called Patan. I can pronounce it wrong. I don't speak French, but um, massive hero from World War I. And he went to the prime minister at that point, the premier, and said, look, we have to reach an armistice with the Germans. We do. If we continue to fight, they're just going to burn down Paris. We cannot stop them. We have to come to some accommodation with them. And so this aged general, uh, beloved by his country, makes a deal with the devil, with Hitler. Do you guys know how that story goes? What happens to the Vichy French? Was that the right or the wrong side of history? It's the wrong side of history. And very much so, I think it was the wrong side of history with the Sadducees. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees are on their way out. There's a rebel group, and we collectively call it the Zealots. Another one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, is one of these guys. And they're going to overthrow all of these folks. Sadducees and the Pharisees are both done. Eventually, the Romans will destroy everything, and there's no more Sadducees. Uh, The Pharisees will survive because they have business contacts outside of Jerusalem. But what would you have done if your family was in Jerusalem? I mean, this is the real question. 
Would you have tried to change society slowly, one heart at a time, like the Pharisees? Would you have tried to be a grown-up and say, hey, we live in a, in a hay barn. Nobody can light a match, okay? We're going to burn this house down if we're not careful. Or would you have been crazy enough to believe a rabbi from Galilee, an outsider, who said, no, there, there's another, another way to do this. So let us jump into probably the most famous Sadducee. Um, well, let, let me show you a video real quick. Um, the Sadducees do not uh, continue on, except for in architecture. Most of the architecture that we have from the first century, the Sadducees built. And how can I distinguish something the Sadducees built? What do you think it looks like? Greek. Um, so let, let me show you just a real quick bumper video of some of the great ruins uh, of the Sadducees uh, in Judea. By then, a new power was emerging in the region, the Greeks. And the Jews were faced with a new kind of threat, annihilation through assimilation. In the 4th century BC, led by a warrior king called Alexander, the Greeks took over the ancient world. In the wake of the warriors came the philosophers, poets, architects and artists who made their own cultural conquests. The hard military power of Assyria or Babylon had sought to destroy Jewish identity through invasion and deportation soft power of Hellenism threatened to submerge it beneath its welcoming waters. I was brought up to believe that Hellenism and Judaism was one of the great dividing paths in the history of culture. You couldn't be Jewish and Greekish. Which was it going to be? Philosophy or the Psalms, the nude or the word? God as a formless, invisible being or God as the ideal vision of the human body? Beauty or law? So what do we make of this? A Jew did not build that. You this know how you know? This spectacular palace, 40 it's still miles standing. east of exactly. was built in the second century BC for a rich Jewish family, the Tobiads, who made a pile collecting taxes for the Greek government in Egypt. But it was still kosher enough to marry into the family of the high priest. Their cash bought them an authentic Jewish classical masterpiece, a combination of grace and power. Like the Tobias, many Jews were seduced by Hellenism. Some even went through the painful operation of reverse circumcision, an eye-watering procedure involving weights and pulleys, so that they could appear without embarrassment alongside the body-worshipping Greeks. In Greeks love to be naked. More significantly, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, an important bridge that connected Judaism to the wider world. 
But although individual Jews could cross that bridge, and many did, Jewish identity itself could not if it was to remain distinctly Jewish. You could build yourself an elegant palace in the latest Greek fashion. You could speak Greek, you could dress like a Greek, you could read the Bible translated into Greek. You could even tell yourself that Plato and the Greek philosophers must have read Moses the lawgiver. But in the end, an absolute fusion of the two cultures was actually impossible. Zeus was not a beefier version of the Jewish God, and the favorite residence of that God was not a limestone palace, but a house of words. So I really think the more we understand this period of time, the better we can draw analogies to our own. Is there culture wars going on? Do we still struggle with how do we really express Christianity? Do we have a literal, or do we study the word? You know, everybody, if you ask a Sadducee or a Pharisee, uh, do you want to do what God asks you to do? Do you want to be the people of God? They would say yes. I mean, they're, they're not just bad guys. They, they want to do what's right. Why it's important to get their stories is because the decisions they made in trying to do what God wanted led them to some really bad places. So, you, you know the most famous Pharisee, probably, Nicodemus, right? Who's the most famous Sadducee? Think about it. If they are the priests, who's the most famous of them? The high priest under, uh, when Jesus was there, Caiaphas, who is the Sadducee of Sadducees. Um, as usual, I don't have Steve here to help me manage time, so I got to go faster. Um, Caiaphas is an interesting character. We're going to talk about him. Uh, let me just say quickly, he got his job because he married well. Uh, his father-in-law, Annas, is actually the high priest. Now remember, this is all through family lines. But the Romans would go through and say... Um, we need somebody that's uh, qualified and knows Roman law and someone who uh, you know, appreciates the value of Caesar. <clears throat> Am I making myself clear? Um, someone that's going to appreciate this virtues of, okay, so you bribe the Romans, and it was a hefty, hefty bribe. And if you were of these families, then the Romans would appoint you as high priest, which you were almost sort of a, a secondary ruler. You're sort of a local ruler beneath their king, Herod, or later the proconsul. So that's great. You've bribed the Roman and you've made money, or he's made money. How long do you think that lasts? Yeah, until the, until the mobster or the Roman decides he needs another, another bribe. So Annas had been the high priest when Jesus was a child. And the Romans came to him and said, eh, you know what, we're going to open it back up. So and Annas doesn't actually have any uh, sons. So he picks his son-in-law, Caiaphas. You know, the doofus he got to marry his daughter. And he says, how about this guy? And they get out the money and they exchange it. So if you notice, when Jesus is arrested, they first take him to Annas. He's actually the one in charge. But Caiaphas' name is on the door. 
So, I mean, again, real history there. You know, I got this job because of my father-in-law, and people know that my father-in-law is really the one in charge, but uh, I'm, I'm the one that's supposed to say some things. So, uh, just to give you a little perspective on what Scripture's saying about Caiaphas, but I want to get into uh, his, his rationale for what he does. So, let's look at John 18. Um, well, no, I'm sorry, uh, John 11. So this is right after the resurrection of Lazarus. And do you think that made the local news? Oh, yeah. I mean, even in the world where, you know, it's the miracles and demons and stuff, uh, the dude coming back from the dead kind of was a different kind of miracle. We'd seen people do some things, but um, a guy being dead and stinky and coming back, that, that got some news. So picking up right after that, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is one of the reasons Jesus says, don't, don't run around telling everybody. Then the leading priests, so instantly we know that they're Sadducees, and Pharisees called the high council together. So let me parse this a little bit. Uh, Sadducees and Pharisees hate each other despise each other. They have diametrically opposed versions of Judaism, one synagogue, one's temple. One is resisting becoming Greek and Roman, and the other is literally working with it. Uh, the Sadducees are always afraid that the Pharisees are going to spark a war. They tolerate the Pharisees because they are sort of a grassroots organization. They are more numerous than the Sadducees. But the Sadducees actually control what's called, this, well, in Greek, Sanhedrin, in Hebrew, Knesset. Um, even though the Pharisees outnumber the, the uh, Sadducees, the Sadducees have more seats in their Congress, so to speak, because the Sadducees are working with the Romans. The Romans ensure that they have the votes. So the Sadducees can override the Pharisees, but they're careful about it because they don't want the Pharisees to go off the edge and again, start a revolt where the Romans will intervene. So the Sadducees are always trying to keep peace, keep things calm. Again, we have to be grown-ups. We know the Romans are irrational, so we have to be more rational. And this is how this argument goes down. What are we going to do, they ask each other. This man is certainly performing many miraculous signs. Okay, if you both love God, that should lead you to a conclusion. But uh, continuing on, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Is that a legitimate argument? I mean, that's what the talking heads would say, wouldn't they, if they're on other news? You know, we've got to be responsible here. We can't follow some messianic uh, figure that's going to talk about a new kingdom that will challenge Rome. Uh, we don't want to lose what little we have. You ever been there? I don't want to risk anything more. Let's just be quiet and get by. Uh, the Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. 
You don't realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Now stop for the, that minute and just think about that. <clears throat> he doesn't mean to say this, I mean, he does, but Christians will pick up on this very quickly. It is better for one man to die than for the whole nation of Israel to suffer. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is going to do? The Christians will always remember Caiaphas saying this. And again, you have to realize he got this job because of his father-in-law. He's not the bright guy. He just sort of laid out what Jesus has always been talking about, but didn't mean it. So like his whole uh, history is a blunder uh, that he, he worked his way into it. But have you ever been in that place? Much better for one person to suffer than for us all to go down. We get that place, don't we? I mean, we humans, it's hard to unify us. Um, what do you do in your business? Do you let the whole company suffer for one person? Or do you get rid of that one person? I think that may be a different kind of scenario, but it's the same kind of thought process they're going through. This is not simple. But I think Jesus' point in all this is, if you get lost in this, you will miss God. If you think you can risk control everything, if you can bubble wrap everything, that when there's a bully and there's a monster in the room, if you become less, if you become more mamby-pamby, then everything will be better. You're not only going to be victim to the monster, I think, but you very well may miss God. God is willing to die for the whole nation. It should have been the high priest that saw that. Remember from the very beginning, God said, I will leave one like Moses who will be the one that approaches me, be the one that talks to me. And you see how this system has completely gone off the rails, not because, you know, the system was wrong or they're supposed to dump it, all those things that we say, but because they're afraid. They've been hurt. They've lost something. And they don't want to lose what little they have left. So right in this place, Jesus is going to walk in the middle and say, let me show you something. You can't worry your way to the kingdom of heaven. You can't be so fearful that you suddenly become faithful. So Caiaphas, uh, worry about the whole nation being destroyed. Next verse. He did not say this on his own. As a high priest at the time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. So at least John is saying, this must have been uh, insight from God. I mean, these bumbling words come out of his mouth. You know, better is to kill this guy than the whole nation suffer. Uh, that's literally what's going to happen, high priest. And it's really sad that you, you are not the one that noticed this. So Caiaphas will arrest Jesus. How does that trial go down? Do you remember? It's an absolute farce. They begin it at night 
one of the fundamental rules of Jewish law is that you cannot do things of God at night. You cannot have a trial at night. Uh, their law makes a big distinction because certain things can be seen at night and done at night that can't be done in the day. They didn't have lights, street lights, and all that. So completely different legal system. You cannot try somebody at night. And that's exactly what they do. Uh, they try to hide Jesus first at Annas' house and later Caiaphas' house instead of taking him to the Sanhedrin at the temple. Uh, it's a complete, complete farce. At the end, who ends up speaking for Jesus in the Sanhedrin? Do you remember? We tend to forget that he did this. The Sanhedrin is sort of this, uh, it's a Congress uh, made of 72 uh, representatives. The Bible said 70, but for whatever reason they had 72. I don't know why. But 72 representative, uh, high priest, and uh, a lot of Sadducees, a few Pharisees. Who stood up to defend Jesus? Nicodemus. We talked about him last week. He may have approached Jesus at night, uh, but when it came down to the trial, he attempted uh, to defend Jesus. Um, so in a sense, he got it. He and Joseph of Arimathea um, both try. And, and certainly at the end, uh, going to the Romans, trying to get Jesus's body back was an incredible act of faith. Uh, so they, they got it. Um, with all these groups, remember, there's good in any group. There can be a good Samaritan, there can be a good Roman, can be a good Pharisee. Even I think there can be a good, good Sadducee, although Caiaphas is probably not it. So Caiaphas, is any of this real? Caiaphas is mentioned in uh, Josephus, also in another Jewish source in the Talmud, but something happened in 1990 that shocked everybody. Let me, let me show you that video. Jerusalem, 1990. A significant archaeological yeah, discovery. Yeah, that's Israeli archaeology. Notice the unnoticed. dump trucks and the bulldozers. A peace park area. The tractor hit the top of the tomb. Well, at first glance, this just looks like a really normal first century tomb. Inside, they find a few artifacts, bones, and 12 limestone burial boxes called ossuaries. The tomb is emptied. But then something unique catches the archaeologist's attention that sets this tomb apart. The name Caiaphas appears inscribed on a very ornate ossuary. After months of careful examination, archaeologists agree that this is the bone box of the man who, according to the Gospels, sent Jesus to the cross. He is the high priest. So we can talk about these bone boxes for a second. Um, we generally know the way Jews buried. Uh, they would dig caves in the limestone, relatively soft limestone in the Judean mountains, and they would carve out a bench, just like we hear with Jesus. Um, they would prepare the body loosely. I mean, they would cover it in some spices, wrap it. They wouldn't mummify it or anything, but they place it in the tomb, and then the body decomposes. So next time you need the tomb, you take the bones and you push them into the back of the cave and you put the next person on. So this is the way it's done. They have a, a saying in Hebrew that sounds very spiritual, be gathered unto your forefathers. Doesn't that sound beautiful? It means they dump your bones in the pile with the rest. Jews don't have an afterlife. So when Herod builds the temple, 
suddenly there's this explosion of a sort of new technology. You know, as, as much of a fan as I am of, of Jewish culture, they're, they're writers and they're thinkers and they're warriors, but they're not builders. Um, so this was a huge change. Herod had to train this whole generation of limestone workers to build a temple. Well, when the temple is done, what do all these guys do? I got to make a living. I got to go somewhere. Now, you know one of these limestone workers. Who is he? Joseph, Jesus' father. They call him a tecton. Unfortunately, in King James, we translate that as carpenter and think he worked with wood. Well, go to Israel and find all the wood for me. Um, they're these limestone workers. That's what it means. It's a, it's, it's a stone worker. Joseph, in that case, was building Sipporah, which was another regional capital. But some other limestone workers would take limestone blocks, they would carve out the middle, and they opened a funeral home. And they said, if you love your grandmother, you won't take her bones and throw them in the back of the cave. You will buy her this brand new, lovely limestone box that I prepared for you, and you will put grandma's bones in the box so she can always be... Um, remembered. So these boxes are fantastic for us because they're right between, um, well, the, the first 70 years of the uh, first century is the only time they have them. Once the Romans destroy Jerusalem, they never do this again. Really, when that generation of limestone workers died off, they didn't do it again. Uh, so they're wonderful, wonderful dating tools. Uh, we have found several of them, but none perhaps as exciting as this one. People say, how do you know Jesus really existed? Well, there's stuff you would imagine, you know, in, in a movie or something, but real archaeology, real, this is it. I mean, we've got the bones of Caiaphas uh, with the, the, the scriptures described to us. Actually, we found a lot of his family in there. His daughter is also uh, her uh, ossuary has been discovered. Now, here's the really wild thing. When they were excavating the tomb, and that was a reenactment, you don't go in and grab skulls and, oh, let's look at this, and pull limestone. My God, you can't do that. Even Israeli archaeologists who are horrendous about bulldozers and stuff, they don't do that. But they found uh, Roman nails in the tomb. Why would there be Roman nails in Caiaphas' tomb? We don't know. It's a really strange thing. And uh, your, your imagination would sort of run wild with you. Was this someone's commentary about Caiaphas? There is something in the Talmud that says um, that a nail from a crucifixion can be a, like a blessing. It, it's a ward against evil. So that may have been a little bit what was going on. But it's just one of those weird, uh, some guy maybe just dropped it out of his pocket, although they really didn't have pockets. So they have pants. Um, so you never know what you discover in excavation. Um, someday maybe we'll get the answer to that. But there are some people that go wild with that and think Caiaphas felt guilty or something. But again, we have no evidence other than we can prove Caiaphas existed and there's Roman nails in his family tomb. So anyway, I've gone through this terribly quickly. Do we have comments, questions? Yes. After, uh, after, after Pilate was, was the prosecutor in that, I didn't know about Tyrus. 
Yeah, Pilate uh, eventually passes uh, the execution sentence because the Romans are the only ones that have the power to execute. The the Jews, yeah, could convict him, but they couldn't execute him. So, yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, that's what those are. Yeah. Yeah. You can buy ossuaries. Um, a friend of mine talked me, tried to talk me into buying one. Um, <laughs> I, I may get one for the church because we need a bone box, don't we? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Where, I don't know where you put it. You know, it's not like you can plant flowers in it, right? Um, So in the future, when you think of these folks, um, they ended up doing really stupid, stupid things. I mean, how could Jesus be right there before you, be teaching you out of love about eternity, and you completely miss it? I think if we learn the lesson of the Pharisees that we can't get lost in the details, we have a level of defense. When we look at the Sadducees and we think we can't be so afraid of the world. We can't be so afraid of what's happening that we just want to freeze everything. Let, let me show you last one video clip. It's animated, but I, I think even though this is French history, it could be Caiaphas's history and where we don't ever want to end up. Um. An old man looks out the window. Bright July sun dances across the waves and the sound of surf gently breaking on the island's shore fills the bedroom. But it is not a pastoral seascape the man sees. Marshal Philippe Pitain looks out of a window to his past, to the glory he won at Verdun, to his tenure as Minister of War, and then to the fateful election that gave him near absolute power over France, to his collaboration with Hitler to participating in the slaughter of his own people, the despoiling of his own nation, and when the army of free France returned to civil war. As Piton closes his eyes for the final time, so does it close a conflicted life led by a man who believed resolutely in the necessary actions of Vichy France. With that, the leader of an often overlooked Axis power goes to his final rest. So I hope that stays with us. Times are hard. I was having lunch with a a friend today and uh, confessing, I'm not exactly sure where our church is going. Um, We're going to do our best. Uh, to go where God wants us to, just as the Pharisees and Sadducees would say. Um, But I don't want to make those mistakes. I don't want to run back and let someone else take over. I don't want to get lost in the details so that we just become legalistic. I don't want to become so fearful again that we can't do anything. We've got to make our choices now. We've got to be as hard as it is, those people that will say, I'm really going to follow Jesus. 
I'm really going to take this scripture seriously. There might be a, a couple of ways that we do that, but we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to say, God taught this, and then today we have the power to dismiss it. It doesn't work that way. But it doesn't mean we're not intentional, loving, creative in the way that we apply it. But I don't want to end my ministry sitting in that chair, looking at the window, thinking, I screwed this up. I hurt a lot of people because I was afraid. So I can't promise you we won't have some bumps in the road, but it's going to be as genuine, as real as I've ever known in ministry. And I think, I think we'll end in a good place. So that's my worry. Any other comments, questions, worries? Let's pray. Father, our God, we thank you for the parade of weird names and pray that we learn something from it and how not to be. You've given us a better example of how to be. As the world got caught in these deep ditches and trenches with barbed wire that they couldn't get out of, you found a way to walk from side to side and called people of all stripes, all colors, all backgrounds to a better place, to a better life. A life that ultimately was not about the war, but about choices that are made of love and righteousness, about being a holy people again. They don't fight the whole world, but love the whole world so that it is changed. Lord God, we do see in hindsight that you defeated Rome. You brought Hellenism to its knees. The world's religion today is not worshiping Zeus or Caesar, but it's worshiping you. So, Father, just because we put your name on the door, as we've added the new bumper sticker, Christian, we know we are not immune from the lessons you tried to teach your firstborn. Help us to learn from their mistakes that we don't make them again. Help us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.